in the political sphere, authoritarianism has been defined as a political system that rejects conflict and plurality in politics. Authoritarianism also possesses the will to preserve the status quo through tight political restraint under a strong central power. Authoritarianism erodes the rule of law, division of powers, and democratic voting procedures. This form of government has long had a strong foothold in the Southeast Asian region, with many political incumbents here continuing to practice authoritarian practices despite the adoption of democratic institutions such as elections, legislators, and political parties. This paints a bleak future for further democratic reform in Southeast Asia as autocrats from varied authoritarian regimes have only built namesake democratic institutions just to produce an uneven political field in favor of incumbents to maintain their role. In other words, long-lasting authoritarian states like Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, Singapore, Malaysia, and Brunei have had the same party in power for more than 30 years, regardless of their fluctuating external factors such as rising economic crisis, ethnic and religious polarization that should have fostered political change. Even countries such as Malaysia and Singapore, who are sufficiently wealthy and well-developed, retain authoritarian regimes resilient to multi-party elections. These are institutional arrangements that should, in theory, make it harder for incumbents to hold on to power. Thus, in this podcast episode, Edward, the Saikai president of 2020-2021, and Ms. Elaine, a prominent researcher in social psychology, discuss and analyze, firstly, the social psychology underpinnings of authoritarianism in Southeast Asia, secondly, its current sophisticated evolution to adopt democratic tendencies, and lastly, what can be done by everyday people moving forward. Thank you, Ms. Elaine, for being here to speak with us today. We have much to unpack regarding the current state of our region. Hello, Edward. How are you? Glad to be here. Glad to have you as well. It's always exciting to talk to you. Last time we spoke was last year, November, back when the presidential election was going on in the US. And now we have things happening in the East. So I guess we're back here with the Myanmar coup happening recently. I guess I'll start off by asking you whether you think authoritarianism is prominent in Southeast Asia. Authoritarianism as a system of government in name, not exactly. I think we have a tendency to at least allude to democracy or want to be seen as democracies because obviously that means internationally trade and all of that becomes a lot easier because there's a lot of resistance among sort of the Western world countries about doing business with any countries that are seen to be authoritarian in nature. So there's a certainly at least on the surface a veneer of democracy and of course a lot of us have inherited the political systems that were from our colonial past. So the British and all of that have left their way of doing government as a gift to us, I guess. That's why we have first past the post in Malaysia, uh, which is not ideal. We do have democratic systems in Southeast Asia in terms of their functionality and how they are being implemented and the way decisions are being made, etc. Now that's a different story. It's a lot more complicated than that. So is it authoritarian in totality? The answer is no. But are there authoritarian tendencies? Then yes, arguably this part of the world has a lot more inclination towards that compared to say places like Scandinavia, for example. 
I see authoritarian tendencies. I think a more appropriate term to use. So building on that and why perhaps we have an inclination for these tendencies based on research that Hofstede's cultural dimensions have shown that countries with low individualism and high power distance tend to possess high levels of authoritarian tendencies in their countries. And it's no surprise that countries in Southeast Asia as well have this combination of cultural dimensions. So from this perspective and point of view, could you help us understand how these dimensions contribute to higher authoritarianism tendencies in Southeast Asia. Okay, so when you look at what makes up authoritarianism, right? So it's sort of a preference for the status quo, preserving status quo. It's a preference for a hierarchical system of, I guess, society. It's very much a case of preferring what we know and collaborating in order to ensure that that doesn't change. So it's very much a case of people preferring things to follow tradition and keep things to the way we've always done things. So there's a rejection of change, in a sense, suspicion of different ways of doing things. So if you look at collectivism or, or low individualism, for example, that's typically characterized as not wanting to stand out too much from the next person, right? So everybody sort of has their role to play within that ecosystem. And by sort of trying to be too outside of the norm, you kind of make yourself stand out too much and that's frowned upon. So people who are in a collectivist culture, for example, are heavily governed by social norms, which is very similar to what you would get with somebody who has, say, high right-wing authoritarianism personality, for example, with a preference for things to be normative in terms of how they relate with the world. So if taking those together, you would argue that if a country is collectivist in nature or more inclined to be collectivist in nature, they're going to resonate more with a government that is very much about keeping order, keeping tradition at any cost, right? So anyone who challenges that sort of narrative or the norms are seen to be people who are stirring up trouble, who are trying to disturb the peace and so on. So an authoritarian government at least gives the illusion of consensus, of peace, of harmony, because it keeps things the way citizens think it should be based on their cultures and their traditions. So that's definitely one of the ways in which collectivist countries probably are better suited towards authoritarianism as such. And also the power distance thing, of course, as I mentioned, there is a tendency towards sort of a preference for hierarchy. So if that's the case, that the ceding of power to people who are governing you, that makes it a lot easier for authoritarian governments to use that seat of power to say this is for your own good or this is for the good of the country, this is for the good of our position in the society or internationally and so on. They can use that card because people in a culture that is high in power distance automatically have a respect for position. So they have a lot of legitimate power in that sense. I see. So I would just like to build upon that. Are countries with these dimensions doomed in the way to be more inclined towards authoritarian rule? Or is there a way that they can maintain their value for social harmony and collectivism while avoiding being an under an authoritarian government? I think one of the things is obviously with more exposure, with more of a understanding of what is out there in the world, people will start to recognize that there isn't only just one way of doing things and 
that they can resonate with things that are outside of what they see within their own cultures. So obviously part of the problem, at least in the past, or at least in countries that are a little bit more isolationist, is obviously a lack of exposure to other ways of doing things, other ways of thinking. So you find that there is much more resistance to new ideas, to accepting new traditions or new cultures, etc. And that's largely to do with basically the devil you know, right? But when you actually expose people to the wider world, it doesn't mean that they're going to agree with everything other people are doing or want to necessarily adopt those practices, but it means that they have a chance to see that what their country, their culture, their families have been doing is not the only way to do it, and they could possibly resonate with something from somewhere else entirely. And that sort of opens up more neural networks for them as such, you know, where they are no longer being limited by the boundaries of their personal experience and are able to make connections with things that are a little bit more abstract, a little bit outside of their experience, but something that intrigues them and they want to find out more. So it's not so much a, just because I have a preference for something, it means that I'm doomed to only do things a certain way. It's more that with more information, with more exposure, people have more of a chance of deciding what they prefer, right? And that's how you get democracy. It's just the way in which that democracy is implemented might reflect the preferences of the people within that community. But ultimately, that is giving the people a sense that they have a choice of how they want to be governed, which is different from an authoritarian regime where there is no choice, there is no political plurality for people to say, oh no, I prefer it to be done this way versus this way. So I think that's kind of what we need to focus on, which is less about making people less authoritarian or less collectivist or have less preference for social normativity, so to speak, but more about presenting people with choices, which is ultimately what democracy is about, as opposed to this is the only choice you have because this is the only thing you know. Wouldn't the additional choices and additional like influences to the wider world in a way upend the tradition of collectivist culture or social harmony culture in that way and that's not something they want right as well like they want to maintain tradition and in a way yes of course there's a challenge to status quo for sure but collectivism doesn't mean that i only want status quo collectivism doesn't necessarily mean i'm completely opposed change that's authoritarianism but collectivism is more about being sort of an interdependent society recognizing that people need each other in order to progress forward etc so it's a slightly different bent obviously that is correlated with preferences for order and adherence to norms and so on but it's not the same thing as authoritarianism so in a sense yes of course it's going to exposure is obviously going to upend certain things but if people naturally have a collectivist perspective then in a sense Although there are new ideas coming in, part of it will be how do we fit these new ideas into sort of our way of approaching these issues, right? So if you think about, say, places like Taiwan and gay rights, for example, Taiwan is a collectivist country. Taiwan is not exactly the same as, I don't know, Ireland or the US or Scotland in a lot of ways, but they've gotten to a point where they are willing to embrace the rights of minorities despite having a traditional cultural worldview. So it's very much a case about not the political ideology determining what people are going to be open to, but very much about having that openness become a part of the conversation and then seeing how that then fits into what the people of that country would want 
given the choice. So they're still collectivists, but they are more open to ideas than a country that has maybe never actually been exposed to these ideas to begin with. Say, I guess someone like Myanmar would probably be the best example because they've been so closed off to the rest of the world that it's unlikely that the average citizen even knows what's out there for them to be protesting for, right? Or to be fighting for that they would want for themselves, apart from what they are hearing from their own government or own media and so on. So sure, it will upend certain things, but it doesn't necessarily change the preferences for how a society should function, I think is the difference between collectivist versus individualist cultures. Now, there is another cultural view that showcases Southeast Asian countries to likely have more autocratic governing systems due to them possessing tight cultures. Now, these are cultures that have been found to possess many social norms and are intolerant of deviant behavior, quite similar to the collectivistic dimension of Hofstede's dimensions that we previously discussed. Uh, this has been argued to be brought about by high occurrences of historical and ecological threats, such as natural disasters, history of conflict, um, high population density, and resource scarcity in the area. Could you help us understand why external threats, such as the ones that were just mentioned, would cause a nation to be more likely to adopt autocratic or authoritarian governance? Okay, so when a community is faced with threat, one of the things that happens is obviously a self-protective tendency and see how I can ensure that the members of my group are able to survive the threat and that my group still is able to flourish in the face of the threat. In order to do this, it does of course require that the members of the group cooperate in order to achieve whatever the group needs to achieve in order to ensure the outcome that they want, which is group survival, right? So when that happens, a few things need to take place. You can't have a lot of dissent in the ranks because that means that your battle strategies or your ability to combat the threat is going to be very messy and unpredictable. So you need people to come together, come to an agreement and all work towards things in a very regimented, very clear-cut way. So this is sort of where the whole idea of group thing comes in, right? Where you're trying to prioritize consensus so that everyone knows what the game plan is, everybody's on board and you can trust that everyone is going to follow the game plan in order to achieve your outcome because any deviation from that could change the trajectory of the outcome for your group. So if that's the case and that is what is required to take on threats, not just realistic threats but even symbolic threats to culture and all of that, if that's what is needed in order for that to happen, then you find that people become a lot more conforming a lot harder on people who are dissenting in order to ensure that the social order is maintained so that they can work together and trust each other to achieve the outcomes anyway. So if you're talking about there being a tighter culture in places, especially where they have faced a lot of threat to survival, then that's possibly one of the explanations why homogeneity is preferred, sort of normativity is preferred, because this basically indicates that the group will be able to function as a collective. 
to maintain its status, to protect its people and so on. So it possibly sprang from that. And if you think about places like, say, the Middle East and all of that, where there's a lot of conflict, you find that the individual countries and individual sort of tribes and all of that within those countries are extremely tight cultures within themselves. It's very difficult to penetrate into those cultural groups. And that might be one of the reasons why, because trust is low outside the in-group. So there's high levels of ethnocentrism, for example, where because I'm always in a state of threat, I cannot trust somebody who is not part of my in-group. I'm automatically going to be very suspicious of somebody who's not part of my in-group. And if someone in my in-group is starting to behave in ways that are not in line with my in-group's agenda or beliefs and so on, then they are also seen with more suspicion because it means that I cannot trust you to be aligned with what we need to do in order to ensure that our group survives. So if you look at it from that angle, that's sort of how a tighter culture can develop in places that are more exposed to various sorts of threats. And we do face these threats kind of in Southeast Asia as well, right? There's a lot of defragmented countries with a lot of conflict between us in a way. Yes, Southeast Asia definitely has faced a lot of conflict. Historically, this region has been one of the most sought after, fought over regions around the world because of its location. So control over the countries within this region have always been something that the colonial powers in the past were seeking after because it meant that they could control trade. Right? It meant that they could access the natural resources in this region and use it for their own country's development. So there is a long history of conflict in Southeast Asia over natural resources. And so it is perfectly understandable that the communities or the cultural groups in this region are going to be a lot more protective over their cultures and their traditions and be a lot more suspicious of so-called Western or other influences trying to interfere with the way we want to do things, right? Or the way we think is the best way to run our countries and so on. Because we've had so much of that in the past that once we were able to self-govern, then that is more of a, now this is mine, or you no longer have that power over me, right? So that's obviously that pushback. So Southeast Asia, for sure, there's always been threat. And there's also the natural threats, natural disasters and all of that. If you look at Indonesia, for example, Philippines, they're so exposed to the elements. So obviously there is a physical threat as well that people need to learn how to respond very quickly to authority in order to ensure that they can protect themselves from these sorts of threats as well. So you start to learn how to follow instructions almost blindly in order to ensure your survival. So there's those elements as well. That's unfortunate. So it's safe to assume that uh, even modern day threats that we spoke of could increase the likelihood of a nation adopting authoritarian rule at the current point of time? It's possible. If you're wondering, like for example, in Europe and in the US and a lot of Western countries, you see more and more people becoming enamored of right-wing authoritarianism, right? So extremist right-wing parties are becoming more and more normalized, right, in places like the UK, Holland, and so on. So there are different sorts of threats, right, that people perceive. And symbolic threat, of course, is becoming one of the bigger ones that countries that don't have conflict over resources are currently facing, or at least direct conflict over resources. Because globalization and the movement of 
various cultures into previously homogeneous societies are forcing them to reckon with the idea that there might be people moving into our communities that might have very different points of view from us and that could potentially change the way we have always lived our lives right so when previously you could dictate that people don't wear hats into a particular space and then now you know somebody is wearing a headscarf that they cannot take off how do you respond to that for example so these are things that people are having to accommodate or you know like the halal thing and all of that kind of stuff that they never had to and now they are sort of being challenged in that way and that's causing some pushback from some people who want to maintain the status quo which is ultimately an authoritarian leaning so a modern day threat to the in group can also result in authoritarian or arise in authoritarian sentiment so to speak could you elaborate a bit more on what symbolic threat is okay so unlike realistic threat so realistic threat is threat to actual livelihood or resource right so like for example if two countries on either side of a river whose fish is it right so that's realistic threat so the conflict would be over who has control over the river to what extent and so on you see that in sort of the idea of international waters and all the kind of stuff nowadays right so that's realistic threat and if somebody is coming to try and take away that physical resource from you then you would face a sense of realistic threat symbolic threat on the other hand is a threat to your culture your traditions your belief systems values and so on so for example say i was like someone from queer eye right who is gender non specific they are homosexual walking into say a conservative white american bible belt town those people might have never ever met anyone who's openly gay before let alone gender non-conforming so just this idea that there are people out there who don't follow the strict male female dichotomy who are not heterosexual who would be open about this would be a challenge to that belief system about how they see the world what they view as being right or wrong so that community would face symbolic threat and we find that symbolic threat has a as powerful an effect on people's sense of ethnocentrism uh people's self-protective mechanisms as realistic threat because our belief system essentially makes up our world view and we really really dislike that being challenged we really don't like the idea that we might be wrong about something as fundamental as our belief systems and how the world started and who is in charge of the world and so on So having that challenge can actually lead to as aggressive a response as say having someone challenge you for that piece of land that you think you have a right to. So in today's world where there's outside of certain regions there's less sort of a land dispute there's more of a cultural value based conflict that's taking place between a lot of different cultural groups or religious groups and so on. So ideological conflict as opposed to physical resource driven conflict so do you think that with all these cultural dispositions for authoritarian inclinations can southeast asia change or shift away from these inclinations toward authoritarian governing i think we can and we are so i think the conflict that you're seeing now you know in like thailand and in myanmar and to a lesser extent in malaysia because i think malaysia because we already pride ourselves as being a democracy we're a little bit confused sometimes but then we recognize that in some ways we're not and then so we're a bit half baked because there isn't a very clear 
something to fight against, right? But like in places like Thailand and Myanmar and so on, you find that there is a lot of conflict because people are pushing back, because people are recognizing that this is not the way they want to be governed, right? So if you think about the protesters in Thailand, for example, a lot of them are university students who have exposure, who have seen that there are other ways of doing things and they disagree with the way politics is done in Thailand, for example. So there is a possibility for Southeast Asia to change, but like any kind of change or any real movement towards changing an ideological approach to governing, there will be conflict and there needs to be that conflict taking place in order for that change to happen. Unfortunately, it will not happen. In an ideal world, it would happen peacefully, but people will push back against ideological change. That's just one of the inevitable outcomes of intergroup dynamics at the end of the day. So whether we can change, I think we can. It will just take time and it will require whoever is fighting for this change to slowly convince the people around them that what they're fighting for is actually something that's better than the status quo. That is what needs to be transmitted to the silent majority that people always talk about, right? Because the silent majority are the ones who ultimately will tip the scales in either direction. So they're the ones who might not be paying a lot of attention to politics. They're the ones who might not care because whatever is happening sort of at an intellectual ideological level isn't necessarily affecting their bread and butter. So they're not overly concerned with what the government is doing so long as the whatever the government is doing is not affecting them. So any change that is going to happen needs to come from this silent majority slowly being convinced that remaining silent is actually more detrimental to them. Preserving the status quo is going to make things worse for them in the long term than supporting change now. So that's kind of where the conversation needs to be. It's sort of happening now with Scotland. In 2014, they voted against becoming independent from the rest of the UK because right now the United Kingdom is this weird structure with England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland sort of sharing one central government in the UK, but actually each being in themselves countries on their own. So Scotland in 2014 voted against breaking away from the UK because more people at the time didn't think that it was a viable option relative to remaining within the UK. But over the past few years, they've sort of started to see how decisions were made differently in Scotland to how the rest of the UK was being governed. And relative to that, which was the more preferred way of approaching a national issue. So that it has been more movement since then towards independence, but obviously we don't know yet the extent to which that movement is actually going to be reflected in any polling. But there has been a shift in preference in that sense. So likewise in other countries, it might be a little bit slower, but the whole independent thing in Scotland has been like 300, 400 years in the making anyway. So it seems like nothing worthwhile ever comes easy in a way. So we've been talking a lot about external threats. Let's take a bit of our attention to its internal threats as well, because contemporary political scholars have stated that elites in a society will tend to enact authoritarian rule if they are faced with threats to their livelihood from contentious politics. As you mentioned, conflict occurs when change is happening, when change is about to happen, and that can take the form of contentious politics or with radical redistribution 
and demands for that to occur. And also, this could touch urban as opposed to rural areas, especially when there is change happening in the country. And these elites are also more likely to want to protect what they have when there is communal as well as class tensions in society. So I think our listeners from Malaysia and Singapore can draw some parallels to these preconditions with the race riots that predominated their nations back in the 1950s and 1960s. My question to you, Mr. Lane, is does Southeast Asian countries, with its wide array of multiracial societies, tend to face these internal threats or preconditions more often? And does that cause authoritarian rule to occur? Yes, I think... We actually have seen that happen here in Malaysia in response to Meitadin. There are two predominant occurrences of race riots that occurred during the 1950s to 1960s in Singapore and Malaysia. The first was the 1964 communal riots in Singapore that happened in July and September of that year. These riots involved clashes between the Singaporean, Malays and Chinese that occurred in the backdrop of the Indonesia-Malaysia confrontation, as well as the rising political tensions between the People's Action Party in Singapore, which championed multiculturalism, and the Alliance Party in Malaysia, which championed special privileges for the Malay population. The actual causes for these riots have actually never been accurately discerned. The 13th May 1969 incident is another predominant race riot during this period that occurred in Malaysia. This riot also featured clashes between the Malays and Chinese in Malaysia, which were brought about by rising racial tensions, and where the Chinese opposition parties made gains in the 1969 Malaysian general election. In response to Berse, where you know suddenly there was a ban on people carrying anything remotely resembling a weapon, there was increased police presence and increased use of the Sedition Act. And then more recently, you've sort of seen it with the pushback against quote-unquote fake news, right? And who defines news as being fake really is the people who are enforcing the laws at the end of the day, right? So those are an examples of authoritarian practices that come about where there seems to be threat to the rule of the prevailing authority, so to speak. So definitely, it is a feature of any government that doesn't have a lot of trust in its people and vice versa. So one of the ways in which democracy works best is if there is higher levels of civic trust. So the people feel like they can trust the government and the government can trust the people to behave in a socially responsible way. So if you look at, say, Scandinavian countries where their COVID policies, for example, haven't been as rigid as it has been in a lot of the rest of the world, simply because there is a higher level of social responsibility among citizens. And that also partially stems from citizens' trust in the government to take care of them, which they also did through their relief policies and so on. So levels of trust are crucial in maintaining a healthy democracy. And in a lot of countries, especially countries like in Southeast Asia, where perhaps there has not been that level of trust building. Maybe Singapore might have, but the level of trust between government and its citizens isn't very, very high. So arguably, any attempt at questioning the government would be seen as a threat to the government and therefore the government responds with threat suppression, which ultimately is in the form of an authoritarian practice, like squashing freedom of speech, for example, is a hallmark of authoritarianism. 
it seems we've been talking a lot about how authoritarianism comes into play when a country is besieged by threat, whether externally or internally. Is authoritarianism necessary to overcome threat for a nation? Is it a must? Is it always needed to be there? Or are there other ways we can address threat? Actually, the question that you're asking right now actually links to what I was talking about, which is we find that authoritarianism in its actual form, right? So if you talk about regimes that are highly, I guess, mistrustful of its citizens. So the way it governs is such that they treat citizens like it's on a need-to-know basis. So the government's the ultimate decision maker. You don't need to know what goes into the decisions. You don't need to know anything that's going on. You just need to know what I want you to know and do what I tell you to do. And this is how we're going to make sure that our country survives. So that's kind of how an authoritarian regime works. So on the surface, it kind of looks like it's possible to deal with threat effectively in that sense. But the level of fear and the measures that need to be taken in order for something like that to work, right, need to be sort of like China level, you know, where the social conditioning is so strong that people don't dare to go against the commands of that authoritarian regime. So in under those circumstances, at least superficially, threat is more quote-unquote effectively dealt. But if you look at it in terms of long-term sort of social behavior change that don't require government interference, in actual fact, democracies that have high levels of trust between government and citizen, the ones that are the most effective in dealing with threat. So again, COVID is a very good example of this. If you look at New Zealand, for example, they are democratic countries. Their policies might have seemed authoritarian in the sense that they were very strict in terms of how they were implemented and so on. But where they were not authoritarian is in the communication with citizens, in the transparency of what was happening, in the fact that they were releasing information about the number of sick transmission rates. They were communicating with their citizens and also encouraging citizens to comply with whatever practices were deemed necessary in order to contain the virus. So in countries like that, you actually see the same results, really, as you see in China, but with a lot more citizen-level cooperation from the citizens themselves, not because they were afraid that the New Zealand government was going to throw them into jail or worse, but because they had high enough levels of trust in their government that they trusted that the government was doing something in their best interest and also high enough a sense of social responsibility that everybody played their part. It's less to do with how strict a government can be in implementing their policies versus how communicative a government is with their people in terms of what is expected of them and why and what the outcomes of those behaviors will be so that people feel like they can take the word of the government and abide by it because they are confident in the outcome if they follow what is being asked of them. So yeah, you don't need authoritarianism per se. You just need communities that have trust in their leadership, basically. Uh, that's very heartening to hear that we don't have to rely on authoritarianism to deal with threat. <laughs> Moving away from these predispositions to authoritarianism, it does seem that authoritarian rule is evolving to survive in a way in Southeast Asia. Political researchers have argued that adoption of democratic institutions like elections in Southeast Asian countries are not a show of democratic reform, but they are just instead a sign of authoritarianism becoming more 
sophisticated and less retrograde. To illustrate, Southeast Asian authoritarian regimes tend to utilize democratic institutions as tools to proficiently and tactfully repress organized resistance, stamp out voices in a way, or they cunningly rely upon elite protection packs to maintain power, an example of which could be drawn to the political situation in Malaysia. So, Mr. Lane, would you agree that authoritarianism is getting more sophisticated or are these examples actually just signs of uh, dying authoritarian states that are trying to push back against actual democratic reform? I think this sort of speaks to what I was talking about when we first started the conversation where there is a recognition that authoritarianism is frowned upon by a lot of the rest of the world, so to speak. So there's a lot of countries around the world, and not just in Southeast Asia, that are putting on the veneer of democracy because from an international relations standpoint, it's much more conducive to things like trade and agreements and so on with other developed countries that are democratic in their approach. So are they becoming more sophisticated about it? I don't know, because I think sophistication requires that people can't see through you. Unfortunately, I think definitely in Malaysia, our politicians still are not at that level of uh, manipulative ability, thank goodness. So are they becoming more sophisticated? No. But are they trying to play the game? Yes, they definitely are because they know that otherwise they could end up a lot of countries in the Middle East facing sanctions and all of that. And that's not going to be ideal for the economy. It's certainly not going to be ideal for the political unrest that they might face at home if they lose international trade. They are unable to export their goods, especially countries in Southeast Asia that rely so heavily on import-export and the consuming of our natural resources. So if we get sanctioned, for example, we're going to face quite serious economic consequences as a result. So I think there is recognition of that among the political elite. So they're doing whatever they can at face value to try and create a facade of democracy so that other countries can still work with us without facing backlash from their own citizens. So that's kind of the way politics works. Again, other countries will not interfere so long as it seems like there are democratic processes and that there isn't blatant suppression of sort of people power, so to speak. And we've seen a lot of political commentary about Malaysia not necessarily being very transparent, Malaysia's freedom of speech, blah, blah, blah. You see it a lot in the news, but Malaysia hasn't been officially sanctioned because we do have a democratic process. Ultimately, people only look at the processes that are in place, the structures that are in place. They don't look at the content of the structures, right? So if you're choosing between two evils, then there really is no choice. But the fact that there is, at least on paper, a choice is what most other countries will look for. And as long as it's there and it looks like it's being implemented, then they tend to stay out of it because they also benefit from whatever trade agreements they have with us. So unless they are forced to, they're unlikely to step in and interfere. So it's a very delicate balance that a lot of countries are playing or are trying to walk that fine line. But that's why you see a lot of so-called democratic countries having a lot of authoritarian features because ultimately the style of governance is still leaning towards authoritarianism. But embedded within a democratic political structure. Interesting. There's so many games being played. So what are the consequences of these kind of practices or the rise of these kind of practices by Southeast Asian governments or regimes? Consequences? Well, in practice, obviously, there's a lot of issues with freedom of speech, 
issues with the legitimacy of elections, right? I think we have that problem currently ongoing in Malaysia about whether a government that wasn't chosen by a people as a coalition, whether that still qualifies as an elected government, right? So you have that big question mark. Obviously, being the Westminster political system, there is not an issue of legality in the current government, but more about public trust. So in that sense, that's one of the consequences where you disregard the heart of what a democracy is supposed to be, not just the practice of election or not just the structure in which you play, which obviously people can play around with or mess around with as long as they remain within those, the confines of the structures, but more sort of the core of what it's supposed to be, which is the people are the ones who are supposed to decide who they want to hold the seats of power. And where there is authoritarian practices, that will obviously undermine the quote-unquote will of the people, right? Because an authoritarian regime necessarily makes decisions independent of what the majority of the citizens might want because they believe that they should be the decision makers dictating to the rest of the citizens how things should be. So if that's the case, an obvious consequences will be an undermining of freedom of speech, a suppression of contrarian thinking, lack of objectivity, and ultimately as well, it might impact progress too in general simply because a lack of openness to new ideas and new ways of doing things is going to impact how quickly a country responds to the evolution of industry, the evolution of social practices around the world. So the more closed off, the more inward isolationist a country becomes, the more likely it is to be sort of left behind eventually. So any country that's toying with the idea of authoritarianism is playing a pretty dangerous game in a sense that they might gain a lot of political power, but they might lose economic standing. And so that could then be what eventually takes them down. It's a bit of a cycle. I want ultimate power. I'm unable to sustain my economy because what I've done is alienate my allies through trying to get more power. And then because I've done that, then now my citizens are pissed. Now they're uprising and they want to take me down. And then the cycle rinse and repeat, you know? So that's kind of how a consequence of an increase in authoritarianism. I'm going to build upon that a bit. I would also like to know if it's possible if people, as you mentioned previously, that people are not getting fooled by the, in a way, surface democracies or superficial democracies that the Southeast Asian nations are adopting. People can see through the facade and the games that are being played. Is there a possibility that people can come to get fooled by it or can come to get complacent with how the game is being played and just go along with this sham democracy? Not, not really sham, but perhaps superficial democracy, not really the core content of democracy in a way. I think the bigger problem that we would have to contend with is learned helplessness. I think that was certainly quite a big feeling of that early last year when sort of the change in government took place, where there was a sense of what's even the point in engaging in the democratic process when it's not respected and it's so easy for politicians to just do whatever they want and there's nothing that we can do about it. So I think learned helplessness is one of the bigger threats to democracy where people start to feel like they really have no recourse, or at least they have no peaceful recourse. Why I said before that it really will take something impacting bread and butter issues for citizens to try and make that change is because 
that learned helplessness will be there for as long as conflict seems the worst of the two options. Meaning that there's nothing I can do about this current government, but I'm kind of okay getting involved and trying to change things could make my life a lot worse than it already is. Therefore, given that balance... I'd rather accept this lamed up government rather than try and change things too much because otherwise I might lose out in the end. Versus coming to a point where a government has become so authoritarian that it's impacting your day-to-day, it's impacting your ability to provide, it's impacting your progress, and the government in itself is becoming sort of a threat to you and your family and your survival. That's when people again weigh the balance of options and then decide, okay, enough's enough. I'm now more open to the idea of engaging in conflict in order to change things so that they become better for me and mine, right? So that's kind of the cycle that people have to go through in order to sort of decide to challenge authoritarian regimes. And in places like Malaysia, for example, we're still very, very comfortable in a lot of ways. So you find that people are okay with protesting whether it's online or in the streets through Bursay and stuff like that. But we're not willing to cross the line into anything else yet. And that's because there's still quite a heavy feature of democracy. There is still that sense of we're still kind of being taken care of. We're not as bad as other countries. Most of us have access to more than our basic needs. So there really isn't a lot of impetus to actually force any kind of change. And so that would be one of the consequences, I guess. All right. Thanks. Moving on, there's a form of leadership called paternalistic leadership, whereby leaders exert authority and power with parental benevolence and expect loyalty and deference from their citizens in return. So it's kind of like the strict father that wants what's good for you, basically, but is very strict in a way. That's a parallel or an analogy. And this form of leadership has been found to be quite welcomed and effective in countries that have high power distance and high collectivism, like countries in Southeast Asia. So a good example of this leadership in effect would be in Singapore with Lee Kuan Yew. Now, interesting to note is that this form of leadership is made up of dimensions of authoritarianism with benevolent leadership and morality, of course, the other two components that make it up. So three components in total, authoritarianism, benevolent leadership and morality. So my question is, what is the possibility of paternalistic leadership like that which occurred in Singapore to result from authoritarianism in Southeast Asia? Paternalistic leadership is kind of authoritarianism-like because there's still that sense that government knows what's best for you and that you just need to follow, you don't have to understand. So it's kind of authoritarian in nature, but couched as done from a perspective of concern and care for citizens. So it's just sort of a different way of doing authoritarianism. What are the chances of it happening here? I think it's high because it's sort of the best of both worlds, really, because it's high power distance, but it appeals to the collective nature of countries in this region, whereby they are all very sort of into the idea of taking care of each other, working together, making sure everyone in the community is okay. So if the government comes from a standpoint of, we want to look after you, we are looking out for your best interests, and they are trustworthy. So I think in places like Singapore, for example, they can definitely get away with it a little bit better because they do take care of their citizens and the citizens feel like they can trust 
the government more than say Malaysia, for example, comparatively. That's why they can get away with a more paternalistic approach compared to Malaysia, because even though the government says they care about you, there are going to be people in Malaysia who might doubt that. So if there is doubt, then it's hard for paternalism to work. So it really depends on the level of trust between the government and the citizens as well as to how effective it would be for the government to adopt that approach. I know that paternalistic leadership can be termed as a light form of authoritarianism or at least a different form of it. But hasn't Singapore in a way shown that there can be good effects from such a leadership style? I guess my question is, can it be good in a way? I mean, it can be good. Obviously, if we are looking at sort of outcome from just a pure statistics outcome, right? So, for example, are the number of cases in Singapore down? Very low, yes. Compared to the rest of the region, how are they doing? They're doing so much better. But the question is, when you take away the harsher penalties, for example, that a Singaporean government would implement on people who do not comply, would there still be that same level of overall compliance and social responsibility? I don't know because when Singaporeans cross the border, their adherence to rules can be sometimes quite questionable. So it's developing a citizenship that is not necessarily very intrinsic compared to, say, countries that develop social responsibility as part of their overall approach to democracy, whereby the understanding is that it is the citizens' responsibility as much as the government's in order for the social order to be maintained. And they don't need a lot of governing in order for that to happen, right? So if you look at Australia, for example, recycling, being careful with water consumption, all of these things are not done by Australians just because the governments are going to come and find them, but you find that it's been internalized as a way of life and how to approach their day-to-day citizenship. So where a paternalistic approach might, or even an authoritarian approach, might give you that semblance of order, when you take away the iron fist, does that order still remain? is probably the better assessment of how effective a system of governance is in ensuring a community or a society is able to thrive and continue to be cooperative. So it kind of highlights a citizenship that is independent in a way or at least self-sustaining regardless. And responsible and accountable as well. Because people have this idea of democracy as, oh, we elect our leaders and then it's the leader's job to do everything. When really a democracy is for the people, by the people, right? So who is the people? Basically the people who elected these representatives. But we also have a responsibility as citizens to play our part in maintaining that democracy and in maintaining the social order that we want to have, right? So if the government says, you know, we need to implement certain policies to ensure that our society isn't as affected by climate change or whatever, a citizen in a democracy or in a functioning democracy, I'm going to internalize that as part of my responsibility to make that happen as well. So that's sort of the idea behind what you would see as a fully functioning or a functioning democracy compared to a democracy that's sort of more structural rather than a part of the society's ideology. It seems like there's a lot of hard work that's needed from citizens, a lot of additional effort as well in the democracy. Ultimately, yes. And, and that's the thing about why sometimes people prefer high power distance, right? It's because I take away the decision-making responsibility. It's the whole idea you know, behind the disruptive obedience where if things fail, it's not my fault. 
Yeah. So that's why I prefer having a leader in power that I can say, I gave you the responsibility. If it sucks, it's your fault. It's like Malaysia's COVID response, right? Yes, of course, the government could have done better in a lot of things. But Malaysians are not exactly following SOPs like we should be either. Right? So it takes two to, to tango in a democracy, is what I'm saying. Yeah, so that leads to my next question or point in the sense that wouldn't some people be more inclined or at least be have more affinity towards authoritarian rule like they would choose to be under an authoritarian rule because they just do not want to put in the effort or take up the responsibility for the issues oh for sure 100 percent. that's why authoritarianism still exists because as a system of governance especially when there is sort of when things are stable people are comfortable as a system of governance it's it's great because the individual citizen doesn't have to think about the consequences of their actions. They don't have to think about the role they play in maintaining social order because the government is maintaining that social order for them, right? So yeah, of course, there's people who prefer it, which is why it still exists. All right. So moving forward and after discussing everything and knowing all of this, what can citizens in Southeast Asia strive to do to in a way, change the way of ruling or at least like upend authoritarian rule? For me, the takeaway, especially if you're talking about at an individual level, what can we do, is really sort of start working on ourselves first, right? See the kind of citizen we are and be honest with ourselves about that because a lot of us do talk about this. We talk about politics, we talk about social change, but a lot of it is talk. I think the first thing that people need to do is look at ourselves and see what role am I actually playing? in society. Am I a responsible citizen? How much would I do if I didn't think the government would fine me for something? Or how much would I actually take responsibility for my own actions if there were not going to be consequences for acting otherwise? So that's the first step, like a self-reflection to see what role do I actually play in my society? And then the second question is, what am I willing to do to work towards a more democratic society, assuming that is the ideology that I have and assuming that's what I think is the best system of governance for my country. If we really do have the ideology, we need to then assess how much are we willing to sacrifice to make that happen. If you talk to some of the local politicians, especially those people who went in with that sort of point, that change mindset. So I think quite recently I was talking to YB Hena Yo, for example, and she went in with that, I'm going to have to make sacrifices kind of mindset. That's kind of where people need to come from. Like if you really want to make change, you do need to sacrifice. You do need to be open to the idea that things are not going to be comfortable for you for however long you're involved in the whatever change movement that you're a part of. Because change is not comfortable. Change is necessarily going to require sacrifice. So how much are you willing to sacrifice? And then do that much. You don't have to go all in, but decide where your threshold is and then do what you can within that threshold. I think those are the two things to start off with. Because without that, the rest of it is too big. It's too much for the individual to handle or to think about. So I think most of us or those of us who are listening or discussing this right now, we're not really at a level yet where we're going to go and start a revolution. So just at our own spaces, what are we currently doing? An honest assessment. And then what are we willing to do to put our ideologies, our beliefs, our values into action? And the next step after that is looking for where we can 
take that action. So whether it's joining a local political party as a member, writing into your MPs, learning about the Malaysian political system might be a start for some people. Those are just small first steps that we need to take before we can even tackle the larger questions about how we want our political system to work. Thank you for the amazing insights, Miss. It's always a pleasure talking to you about these issues. To our listeners, thank you once again for tuning in. We hope to see you all again in the next episode. Till then, this is Political Points. Stay safe and good night.